In 1943, Abraham Maslow gifted the world with his list of five core essentials that every human being has in common. Today, we call that chart Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, and it's still a framework for how we understand and study much of human behavior today. That list includes a few obvious entries, such as our psychological needs and our desires for love and affection. There are deeper concepts too, like self-actualization and esteem. They're just as important, but a bit harder for many people to understand at first glance. But it's the last item on the list that I want to focus on. It almost seems too obvious to be there, but at the same time, it has a bit of everything. It's basic, yet complex. It straddles the line, and maybe that's why it's so important to all of us. What is it? Safety. Humans like to feel safe. Our pursuit of safety is core to who we are as people. It's not unique to humans, for sure. Animals are very good at finding and building homes wherever they can, but it's undeniable that safety drives a lot of our decisions. And rightly so. We deserve to feel safe. One could argue that it's a subset of freedom. When we are fully in control of our own lives, a portion of that control will always be diverted towards safety. We find safety in many different places, though. We find it in a group of friends because, as every horror movie has taught us, there's safety in numbers. We find it in places like our work, our schools, and religious buildings. Although those are admittedly much less safe today than they were a generation ago, but it's in our homes that we find the most safety. We nest there, in a sense. We build a cocoon around ourselves that protects us from the weather. From outsiders and from harm, but tragically, sometimes that's not enough. I'm Aaron Mankey, and this is Lore. No one liked Andreas Gruber. They thought the old farmer was greedy. And the public perception of the man was that he was rude and cranky. He was an old, crusty farmer, and no one around him appreciated that very much. Gruber was 63, and his wife Cecilia was 72. They lived on their farm about 40 miles north of Munich, between the small German towns of Ingolstadt and Schrobenhausen. It wasn't their farm, though. No, it belonged to their daughter, 35-year-old Victoria. Who lived there on the farm with them, along with her two young children. Her daughter Cecilia was seven, and Josef was two. And it was Josef's birth that really got the neighbors talking. Victoria's husband Karl had left to serve in the First World War in 1914, while she was pregnant with their daughter. According to all reports, he died there in the trenches and never returned. So who fathered Josef? Local gossip. Fueled by a dislike of Andreas Gruber, claimed the boy was a product of incest between Victoria and her father. The birth certificate, though, simply listed the initials L S, leaving the boy's paternity a mystery to wonder and whisper over. The farm provided ample privacy from the gossip, though. 
It sat in a large clearing in the thick German forest, close enough to nearby Kaifek to be part of the village, yet far enough away to be outside the normal flow of life there. Hinter, as the Germans would say. The farm was Hinter, or behind the village of Kaifek, so most called it Hinter Kaifek. They still interacted with the village, though. Young Cecilia attended school six days a week there. The postman delivered mail to the farm regularly, and a local woman even lived with the Grubers as their maid. From everything I've read about the family, they seemed to be nothing more than ordinary. Sure, they were broken in certain ways. Victoria's lost husband, Andreas's reputation as a greedy crank were hard to miss. But overall, they were just one more German farm family doing their best to get by. In the autumn of 1921, the Gruber's maid quit her job there on the farm. She claimed, of all things, that the farm was haunted. She'd heard noises when no one else should have been around. She noticed items that had been moved, items that no one else would admit to. She never felt alone. It took a while to find a replacement, and in the meantime, winter arrived. Life on the farm became more insular. There were no crops to tend to, so the Grubers cared for their animals and stayed warm. But little things were beginning to happen that caught their attention. Things that shouldn't be happening. And it made them wonder if maybe, just maybe, their old maid had been right. They began to hear those same noises in the attic. Andreas even found a newspaper in the house that he had no memory of buying. When he asked his wife and daughter, they were just as baffled. And then one of the house keys went missing. It was unsettling, to say the least. In late March of 1922, though, Andreas noticed the most unusual thing of all. He'd been outside the house to fetch something, perhaps firewood, or to check on the exterior of the house. The night before had given them another fresh layer of snow on the ground, so perhaps he needed to inspect the roof. We don't really know. But as he walked from the house to the barn, Andreas claimed he saw footprints in the snow. It started at the edge of the forest and covered the distance between the trees and the house, ending there. Perhaps a traveler passed through in the night. Maybe a local had been walking through the snow and gotten lost. It happened from time to time. But what was odd about the tracks was that they didn't go back. They just ended there. We know all of this because Gruber himself told some of the locals while he was in town that next day. He was clearly disturbed by the things he had seen, but none of his neighbors had experienced anything similar. And that was the last time anyone saw the old farmer alive. The first clue that anything odd was going on, at least to the people of Kaifek, was when little Cecilia failed to show up for school on Saturday, April 1st. The next day, the entire family was absent from church, where they attended, pardon the pun, religiously. Cecilia missed school on Monday as well. Finally, when the postman arrived on Tuesday, he found Monday's mail still on the porch where he had left it. This drew his suspicion and he mentioned it back in the village. The people there put the pieces together and decided something had to be amiss. So later that day, a group of neighbors gathered together and they quickly set off to visit the farm. 
You know how muffled and quiet it can get outside when there's been a lot of snow? As if the sounds of the world around you have been muted and hushed. I imagine that those men were keenly aware of that unnatural silence, standing there outside the Gruber farmhouse that day. One of the men shouted out for Andreas, or anyone else in the house, to come out and speak with them. They just wanted to make sure everyone was safe and well. But no one answered. Just more of that muted, snow-covered silence. Not giving up, one of the neighbors, a local man named Lawrence Schlittenbauer, led the group to the barn. It was daylight, so perhaps Andreas could be found working in there with the animals. But when they opened the door, they were greeted by a grisly sight. There on the straw-covered floor lay the bloody bodies of Andreas, his wife and daughter, and young Satilia. It was clear that something horrible had happened to the family, and Schlittenbauer quickly walked from the barn to the house, which were connected by a door. Inside, he found more bloodshed. Maria Baumgarten, the new maid who had started work on the farm just the previous day, lay dead in her own bedroom. Little Yosef, last to be found, had met the same fate. It was a scene of devastation and gore, and it left the men stunned. Within a matter of hours, investigators from Munich arrived to go over the scene and gather evidence. They wanted to piece together what had happened, to discover the story, to find the clues that might point to the person or people responsible. What they did uncover, though, was far more disturbing than answers. It appeared that each of the adults in the barn had been led there one at a time. Whoever the killer had been, they had appeared to call each person into the barn alone, where they executed them with a farm tool known as a mattock, a sort of pickaxe used for cutting. Each blow to the head was powerful and deadly, and each victim most likely died instantly. The bodies inside the house had the same type of wounds. Maria and Yosef were found in pools of their own blood, their skulls crushed by their attacker. As far as the police were concerned, whoever wielded the weapon knew how to use it, and they did so without hesitation. This was cold-blooded murder, without a doubt. The trouble was, the weapon seemed to be missing. It was just gone. Other aspects of the crime didn't seem to line up with logic. For one, there seemed to be no motive behind the actions of the killer. It was known to a few in the village that, just weeks before, Victoria had withdrawn all of her savings, borrowed more from her dead husband's sister, and brought the cash home. She told people that she planned to invest in the farm. She even made a large 700-mark donation to the village church. All of the remaining money was still there in the house. The killer hadn't taken it nor had they taken any of the other valuables that filled the farmhouse. Nothing was stolen. Whoever had called the Grubers into the barn, whoever had swung the pickaxe and ended all of their lives, they weren't interested in money. Another detail that seemed odd was the condition of the house and the farm. In most instances, a killer will flee the scene after the crime has been committed. But here, there were signs to the contrary. The animals in the barn appeared to have been fed and watered throughout the weekend, and not by an amateur either. Whoever had tended them knew his way around a farm. 
Most disturbing of all, though, were the reports from neighbors that smoke had been seen rising from the chimney of the farmhouse all through the weekend. Food had been eaten, and one of the beds had even been slept in. It was hard to believe, but the facts didn't lie. The Gruber family's killer didn't run. Instead, he stayed in the house long after the bodies had turned cold. As if nothing had happened at all. The question, of course, was a simple one. Who could do such a thing? But this was 1922. CSI wasn't a thing that existed yet. There was no DNA analysis available to the investigators. Even fingerprint identification was too young to have reached the farmlands of German Bavaria. But even if there had been better tools, there were other obstacles to uncovering the truth. The local men who initially stumbled upon the bodies led by Lorenz Schlittenbauer, had disturbed much of the crime scene. While the maid and young Josef had each been covered with cloth by the killer, the bodies in the barn had actually been stacked like lumber. On top of this macabre pile, the killer had placed an old door, and then hay had been scattered over it in an attempt to hide it. So when Schlittenbauer entered the barn with the others, he actually lifted the door and began to move the bodies, making a full an accurate investigation impossible. According to those who watched him, Schlittenbauer lifted and moved the corpses with no emotion or hesitation, as if the sight of it didn't bother him at all, or maybe wasn't new to him. And it was that, along with some other subtle clues, that quickly moved him to the top of the list of suspects. Why would he do this, though? Well, he told one of the men that he moved the bodies because he was looking for his son. I think back for a moment. Remember the questionable parentage of young Yosef, whose birth certificate simply listed one L.S. as the father? Numerous neighbor testimonies made it clear that Lawrence Schlittenbauer was L.S. And that went a long way toward explaining why he led the men from the barn into the house. He'd been looking for his son, Yosef. But according to some of the men with him that day, the door between the barn and the kitchen had been locked. They knew that because Schlittenbauer pulled a key from his pocket and unlocked the door. Which was more than a little curious, seeing as how Gruber had mentioned in town that one of his house keys had gone missing. And one final bit. The family dog was seen by the postman on the day before, where it had been tied to a corner of the barn outside. When the men arrived on Tuesday, though, they found it in the barn, wounded but alive. When it saw Schlittenbauer, the animal barked uncontrollably. All of the clues seemed odd and out of place. They make your mind perk up and feel like something deeper was going on, but at face value, they proved nothing at all. And that's the frustrating part. The dog might have just been barking because of the bodies. Schlittenmauer might have had a key simply because he was the Gruber's closest neighbor. Like I said, these clues were subtle, and that's why he was never formally charged with a crime. As for motive, some people believe that Victoria had sued Lawrence for alimony, and the man had refused. Clearly, Victoria needed money shortly before the murders, as her bank withdrawal suggested, but historians are doubtful. The most likely reality, they believe, is that Yosef's father was none other than his grandfather, Andreas, and the arrangement with Lawrence was simply an effort to save face in the village. 
Alternative theories have been suggested. There are some who believe that Victoria's husband Carl did not in fact die during World War I. No body was ever recovered or sent home, and a friend of Carl's even testified later to seeing him alive in the mid-20s. Some people wonder, could Carl have had a hand in the murders, perhaps out of anger toward Victoria's relationship with Schlittenbauer while he was away at war? I've even read another theory that claims that Andreas had been waiting for an important letter of some kind. I can't find more than a mention of it, but what if the killer and the letter were connected? That might explain why he stayed in the house for days after the murders. He'd been waiting to intercept whatever the letter contained. One last thought. By all accounts, the killer had been in or around the Gruber home many times before the events of March 31st. The Gruber's former maid had quit her job because she said she felt the place was haunted. There had been the unrecognized newspaper, the odd noises, the missing key. Weeks and weeks of unusual activity that eventually led up to the day of the murders. The day, mind you, that the new maid started working there. Maria Baumgarten had been killed just hours after arriving for her first day on the job. It makes you wonder, did her arrival upset the plans of whoever it was that seemed to be stalking the Gruber family? Did she see him and pay with her life? Hinterkaifeck has the feel of a cabin in the woods, the centerpiece of many a horror film and novel, a place of retreat, far from the demands and prying eyes of the outside world, where we could go to get away, a place where we can find safety in the middle of an unsafe wilderness, a home away from home. We want to feel safe, and thankfully most of us do. But there's just enough risk on the outsides of the bell curve that we're always left wondering, what if? And that's how fear works. It sits in a dark corner at the edge of our minds and watches. We know it's not going to step out into the light, but we can feel it glaring at us from the dark. I can't help but wonder if the Grubers ever had that sensation during those last few months. If maybe there had been times when Andreas just couldn't shake the feeling that someone was watching him. Did Victoria have moments when she felt like she wasn't alone? We'll never know the answers to those questions, though. And one more tiny mystery. The physician who performed the autopsies on all six victims had their heads removed and sent to Munich for further study. Some reports claim that a clairvoyant was part of that research, but I can't find proof of that. Their bodies were buried nearby, in what is now modern-day Weidehofen, but their skulls remained in Munich and were eventually lost in the chaos of World War II. Today, the farm in the woods is little more than a memory. All that is left today is a small memorial. But over the year that followed the tragedy there, it stood empty, like a crypt in the middle of that clearing in the forest. A constant reminder to the neighbors who passed by of all the people they lost, and of the violence that had visited their small village. And maybe that's why they finally tore it down in 1923. Maybe they couldn't stand to look at it again. Maybe it needed upkeep that required going inside, but no one was willing to do that. 
Maybe they just wanted to move on and forget. Whatever the true reason was, it was only after the farm was torn down that the murder weapon was finally discovered. One of the men found it among the debris at the top of the pile, mixed in with items that had been in storage. It had been hidden inside the house all along, in the last place anyone would look. The attic. This episode of Lore was made possible by DoorDash. We live in a pretty amazing world, don't we? You can get anything you need when you need it delivered right to your door. With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. For my family, this became a powerful tool when my kids started back up with after-school sports. All of a sudden, there were days when being able to order a meal became a lifesaver. If it wasn't for DoorDash, we'd have been eating dinner way too late. And maybe you've been there, or in a different situation with a similar solution. Sick on the couch, trapped between never-ending meetings, or even at a party and suddenly out of ice or alcohol. In moments like that, DoorDash can provide a clutch assist. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now and get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 or older to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. This episode of Lore is made possible by June's Journey. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance as you immerse yourself in the world of June's Journey, a hidden object mystery mobile game that puts your detective skills to the test. Play as June Parker and investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s whilst uncovering the mystery of her sister's murder. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Plus, you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I'm willing to bet that, like me, you work crazy hours and are desperately in need of easy ways to relax. I love that I can open up June's journey and dig in for a little while. Searching for hidden objects, fine-tuning my sense of observation, and enjoying the gorgeous artwork are all so, so helpful in letting me unwind. Mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? Relax and lose yourself in this captivating quest of mystery, murder, and romance. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode was made possible by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling and your premium destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Choose from thousands of titles you can't hear anywhere else and embrace the sinister, breathtaking, and shocking tales that will have you on the edge of your seat, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. Audible's extensive library of audiobooks brings thrillers to life using captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. If you love a good folklore-driven supernatural thriller, I cannot say enough good things about Black River Orchard by Chuck Wendig. The audiobook narration is so dang good, and the story is like an evil hybrid of Johnny Appleseed and The Shining, which is probably why it's been nominated for a Stoker Award this year. Really, you have got to check it out. Audible members can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, plus the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, and as an Audible member, you get full access to a growing selection of included audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts. Right now, new members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash lore or text lore to 500-500. That's audible.com slash lore.
This episode of Lore was researched, written, and produced by me, Aaron Mankey. Lore is much more than a podcast. There's a book series in bookstores around the country and online, and the second season of the Amazon Prime television show was recently released. Check them both out if you want more lore in your life. I also make two other podcasts, Aaron Mankey's Cabinet of Curiosities and Unobscured, and I think you'd enjoy both. Each one explores other areas of our dark history, ranging from bite-sized episodes to season-long dives into a single topic. You can learn about both of those shows and everything else going on all over in one central place, theworldoflore.com slash now. And you can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Lore Podcast, all one word, and then click that follow button. When you do, say hi. I like it when people say hi. And as always, thanks for listening.